The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 26, 24 through 32. That's Acts 26, 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK. I fully expected that you'd be rapping that passage for us, but <laughs> you didn't because you used to be an actor, a voice actor, and so on. So, um, well, great delight to be here with you today. My name is Paul Lim. If I haven't had a pleasure to meet you before, I, um, this is the third time in five Sundays that I'm preaching on this lengthy discourse about Paul's incarceration and trial narrative. Uh, before we get there, I think it is important uh, for us to recognize the fact that, as Russell mentioned, uh, Russ mentioned earlier uh, as well, um, Russell, yeah, because the video is that influences you a lot. So um, be careful what you watch and how you watch these things. <laughs> Can get into your head. Um, so I came to Christ Press in 2016 per Scott Saul's invitation to be the scholar in residence. And so for eight years, I've had the pleasure of serving in various capacities, preaching, teaching, presiding. And uh, it's been uh, very challenging for me and innumerable others uh, involved in the life of the congregation. But my other position is I work at Vanderbilt um, University, and, but here's the thing. I feel that, uh, you know, I tell my friends I live and work in Babylon. And in Babylon, called Vanderbilt University, a great school, it does not operate out of the logic of grace. It's not built upon forgiveness. It is not built upon restoration and reconciliation. But the church is and is supposed to be. And so I think it is very important for us to remember that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The Apostles' Creed says very clearly that we all believe in forgiveness of sins. That means, among other things, that we need to remember to extend and ask for and receive forgiveness of sins 
around our community because the world is watching, like it or not, and I think it's important for us to embody that. So uh, with that in mind, I'd like for us to pray as we look to the Lord for this passage as we have read and heard and proclaim it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling all of us to yourself. We thank you that you are on the throne. As Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. It is time for us to be still and know that you are on the throne. That no matter what and no matter where and no matter how, you remain the same. May we call that to our remembrance today as we look to the sovereign and most gracious Heavenly Father to lead us to himself. This day will come to pass. Tomorrow will, Lord willing, come to pass. And may our each day be filled with experience of your grace. May today be no exception, no matter at noon or 4 p.m. or 7 p.m., no matter what the time it is. In your name we pray. Amen. So today's passage, as TK has read for us, is a very interesting passage because it shows Paul once again uh, being watched and evaluated and assessed. And we're going to experience and encounter Paul defending himself and other people being somewhat apathetic toward Paul or misunderstanding or outrightly attacking Paul. But we will also see that um, a man, we'll see a man whose life has been turned upside down because of the reality called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there. I said reality, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is no longer dead but he's alive? And if so, what difference might that make in our life? If Jesus is no longer in the tombs or his body decomposed and completely gone from planet Earth but actually is alive, that Jesus has risen from the dead, is alive today, interceding for you and for me, what difference might that make in the way that we think about self, society, and salvation? So um, we're going to look at these three points today, um, and maybe those three points will help us to be drawn closer to God, the God of the Apostle Paul, the God of Festus, the God of Agrippa, the God of the universe, who is drawing us to himself ever nearer, whether we realize it or not. So these three points are as follows. They all begin with the, uh, the word, uh, the letter I. The first point will be on insanity caused by learning. Second point will be incomparability of position in Christ. And third point will be inexcusability of indifference. So we find the first point in verses 24 through 26, and second point in verses 27 through 29, and third point uh, in verses 30 to 32. So insanity, incomparability, and inexcusability will be the focus of the rest of our time today. So are we ready? Let's plunge right in then. So the first point has to do with insanity. Look at this text right here, as we have read for us, that they're being accused and saying, Paul is being accused and saying, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane or out of your mind. Festus' accusation directed at Paul that his insanity was caused by his learning. We find Festus interrupting Paul, right? I mean, in the middle of his life narrative, which was intertwined with a powerful exposition of the theology of the Messiah, 
who the Messiah is, and the political theology of Israel and Israel's relationship with the rest of the Gentile world. And so it's not just limited to first century, but today as well. Festus interrupts Paul because he cannot tolerate what Paul was mouthing off, that this Jesus of Nazareth, an obscure Jewish man from a podunk town in a podunk colonial hinterlands. For Festus, as a Roman official, who wasn't really happy that he was there, he really wants to kind of climb the grease pole of promotion within the Roman Empire, he's dealing with this kind of minor colonial affair. He hears about this Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't care, he doesn't really know, and he doesn't really care that much about Paul either. And Paul is saying something that begins to kind of irk him a little bit and really irritate him to such an extent that he says, stop it, stop it, because you're going crazy. You have gone mad because all of your great learning about learning something about your God and learning, connecting the dots between your God and this Messiah, alleged Messiah, and the world has gone, driven you completely barking mad. So what's going on here? I mean, what, why? And so let's try to think of it this way. I said things like, you know, this guy, that, that as far as Rome was concerned, Israel was a loser nation. So in the eyes of the United States of America, you may think of a country that you don't really think about a lot. If I were to mention to you Bhutan, when's the last time you thought of the country named Bhutan? You're like, you might be thinking, is that even a country? Is it is a country? Okay, what about Bolivia? Have you, when's the last time you thought of Bolivia? Or Namibia? You're like, are they countries? Yeah, they are. So think of these countries that you don't think that much of. And think of a religious leader or community leader from that country that you don't think that much of that they, you know, somebody came from that region and somebody came from that region and did something wonderful for that community and for that country. Moreover, this community leader, religious leader, has done something and his followers are beginning to go around different parts of the world saying that, hey, this leader from Bhutan, Bolivia, Namibia is actually the leader for the entire world. He is, in fact, the god of the entire cosmos. You're going to be thinking to yourself, you must be crazy. You see what I mean? So we need to understand where Festus is coming from. As far as Festus is concerned, everything begins and ends with Rome. Rome's power, Rome's imperium, Rome's glory, Rome's architecture, Rome's engineering, Rome's law. Roman everything brought about Rome, the Pax Romana, peace of Rome. So as far as Festus is concerned, the fact that this guy, some Jewish guy who happens to be a Roman citizen, is talking about the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, and by the way, how did he die? He died because he died due to crucifixion. Guess what crucifixion stood for in the eyes of a Roman official? That's what? It's death sentence. It is public execution. The only people who got publicly executed were those who were really against the empire or those who were deemed to be history's losers. So in Festus's mind, he could not quite figure out or comprehend this amazing and astounding and shocking and untrue fact, insane fact that this loser guy named Jesus of Nazareth from a loser country called Israel, from a loser town called Nazareth, came and, and, and he's risen again from the dead. He's the Lord of not only of Israel, but of all nations. Now, some of you may be offended by the fact that I call Jesus a loser. Right? And that's exactly right. 
you are offended in the same way that Festus is offended. Because Festus is offended by the opposite fact, that Paul is saying that this is not a loser, he's actually the winner of all things, and he's the Lord of all. Festus is deeply offended because as far as he was concerned, this thing doesn't make sense. That's why he says, hey, stop it, stop it, you're going insane. Your great learning has caused you to be insane. Ephesus could quite easily tell that Paul was an erudite man. He was an educated man. He was steeped in, his, in Israel's scriptures. He also knew as a Roman citizen the ways of the world. Not only was he urbane in terms of knowing about the ways of the world, but he was deeply learned in Israel's scriptures. That meant that he has sort of the best of both worlds. So Festus knew that he was not someone to be trifled with, but he realized, wait a minute, he keeps going on and on and on about this whole thing called Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, this doesn't make any sense. Your learning has driven you insane, right? Because, see, here's the problem. Festus would have been okay if Paul said, okay, J Jesus is the God of Israel. He might have been okay saying, well, yeah, I don't care about Israel, and you can call whoever you want as God. That's fine by me. But then when he began to inch, inch toward and encroach toward the area of Rome and indeed the entire cosmos, entire universe, and said everything belongs to God, the God of Israel, then Festus began to be offended. He began to be offended because this loser nation, this loser person who was crucified is claimed to be the Lord of all. Do you realize that? I mean, it'll be... Tantamount to, um, what, what's the worst NFL team right now? I don't even know. I mean, I, I'm from Philadelphia, so all I care about is the Philadelphia Eagles being at the top of it all, so get it, right? So a very bad team. And someone says, okay, right now we may be 1-7 and seven or 1-8, one, one and eight, but we're going to win the Super Bowl. And you might be saying this, you're going crazy. You're insane because you just don't know what's up. Festus is saying something quite similar. Festus is saying, listen, you may be learning, but you're really offending me because we know what's going on. We are the beginning and the end of human civilization and human glory and human power. We are the Roman Empire, and I'm a, I'm a kind of middle management guy in the empire. I'm, my name is Festus, Portius Festus. And who are you to tell me that our God is not true God and your God? Your podunk, you know, loser God is a real God and the true God and the mightiest of gods and most merciful of them all. So Festus says, stop it. Insanity caused by great learning. In our times as well, the message of Jesus is increasingly seen as an insane and intolerable option because of his universality of scope. It is one thing to say that Jesus is the Lord of Christians, but it's another thing to say that Jesus is the Lord of all nations, of all times, and of all peoples. That is a, an, an amazing scope of universality. As you really think about the fact that Jesus might be that, and if you believe that he is, then I want you to realize that that's a claim of universality that many in our times, just as Festus could not, just as in the first century Rome, it was not acceptable to Festus, it'll be also unacceptable to many in 21st century as well. But one way of looking at it is, I think my, my own kind of proposal is this. Think of it like this. Um, we hear the word inclusivity a lot, right? Inclusivity, inclusion. Think of Jesus' invitation to all people of all times and of all nations as a embrace toward radical inclusivity. All of us, bar none, regardless of culture and country and religion, we're all in need of a better health, 
better physical health, better mental health, better spiritual health. All of, our, all of us are in desperate need of confronting our past with greater courage to face, forgive, and move beyond. What the gospel of Jesus Christ offers is that regardless of your past narrative, your past enemies and pains, we can find a universal inclusion in Christ who have been crucified for you. All you need to do is to reckon that you need this one and not another one. You need Jesus and nothing else. And to say that in 21st century Nashville, to, to claim that and to, to live it, in 21st century New York or London or Beijing or Beirut, that seems insane because of this problem of insanity of education. That leads me to the second point is incomparability of position in Christ. So notice with me here in verses uh, 25 and following. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Then he turns his attention to King Agrippa. He says, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. And notice what he says in the same passage. He says, I can tell you that these things have happened not in a corner, but in public view. So after being accused of his great learning and, 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 and kind of leading directly to his insanity, Paul offers his own defense here. He first of all speaks of the public nature of the works of Jesus. He says in verse 25 that what he's saying is both true and reasonable. He says that these events of Jesus, his words, his works, his death on a cross, all took place in such a way that is demonstrable by way of being able to adduce proofs of eyewitnesses. People were there when Jesus was crucified, and Paul is saying, I can tell you who they are. Paul is saying that Jesus said these things and fed these multitudes and healed the, you know, the, the woman uh, with a bleeding problem, raised Lazarus from the dead. These are demonstrable proofs of the way and the works of Jesus Christ. Then he offered a challenge to King Agrippa, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. You might be familiar with King Herod. That was his grandson who was sitting in front of Paul in today's text. And then Agrippa, seeing through Paul's heart, right? Because Paul says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, you know the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. And notice what Agrippa, um, Agrippa says. He sees through Paul's heart. And he says, hey man, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time like right now as you're standing in front of me, an authority figure? Notice the irony of what Paul is saying and what Agrippa is responding. The irony is that Paul is in trial. Paul is about to be incarcerated. He's not in a position to challenge anyone, to offend anyone. Yet he says, hey, I know. And, then, and, and Paul says, Hey, you believe the scriptures, you believe the prophets. And Agrippa realized that what Paul's rhetorical strategy was going to eventuate itself. He says, hey, I know what you're trying to do. In this short time, you're trying to make me a Christian and that ain't going to work. Right? And now let's notice what Paul says. This is the beautiful summary of Paul's desires. He says, it's not just applicable to you, King Agrippa, but to all of you listening to me. He says, my prayer for you is that you will become exactly like I am in every way, except for one thing, except for the chains. Now notice, this is the incomparability of the position in Christ. He says, there is nothing comparable. There is, it's purely incomparable what I have in Christ. I want you to desire this more than anything else. This to me, as I was preparing this message, was a huge challenge. Can I say, 
that to you all, to everyone in the world, hey, I want you to become just like me because of my position in Christ, which is absolutely incomparable, except for my whatever it is. Let's say I'm in chains and let's say I'm in prison. Let's say I'm in whatever. Then you can say that. And this is something that I've learned in my years of teaching at Vanderbilt. My favorite place to teach um, outside of Christ Press is uh, a Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. So I teach at Riverbend every three or four semesters. Um, I teach a class called God and Human Suffering in Christian Traditions. It's a class on theodicy. So why do bad things happen to good people and so on and so forth. And so this class is, and I go there and I always learn a lot from my brothers uh, about their desires. So there, there, there are some Christians whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel and through the ministry of Man of Valor and other things, but I teach a Vanderbilt class inside a prison. I bring Vanderbilt students with me to that, and there are about 15 students in a seminar context, and it's really a great learning environment. Every time I teach there, there will be somebody who says, you know what, I wish you could be just like me. Just you know, have that sort of freedom. And listening to a man who is incarcerated who's given maximum security, who's living in a maximum security prison, who's so full of the joy of the Lord, who says, you know, I want you to become just like me, except for my chains. You get it? So think of Paul saying the same thing. Paul is incarcerated. He's about to be tried. He's about to be standing in front of Caesar. And he says, you know what? I want you to become just like me, except for my chains. The incomparability of the position in Christ. Paul has experienced something profoundly earth-shattering and life kind of changing for him to say, hey, I want you to really think about the fact that you don't pity me. Don't feel sorry for me. You should actually envy me. When I go to prison and, and learn with my brothers at Riverbend, some of them are basically saying exactly what Paul is saying. Don't pity me. Don't feel sorry for me because I've got something that you may not have. And I remember one of the students telling me, hey, professor, some uh, Vanderbilt students saying, you know, that particular guy, you know, has something that I don't have. I don't know what it is, but that person has something that I don't have. And I said, you know, that may be called something like a joy of the Lord. There may be something like the radiating joy of being rightly kind of reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. The incomparability of this thing, right? And, and all the idols and trinkets of the world come and go. Right? Your cars, wonderful cars though they may be, they'll come and go. Your house will start to kind of, you know, need some repair after a few years. Your body will start to function not as properly and not as quickly, not as powerfully as you did. If you can believe this, there was a time in my life when I benched 225 pounds. I know you're laughing. You're like, no, that's not true. It is true, but it doesn't look like it right now. I'm 56 years old, and I can tell you that 35 years ago, I did that. You see, our bodies come and go. Our places, all of these things, in 100 years, this place, everyone will be new. All the empires and mighty nation states leave, have come, and they have gone. The Roman Empire have come, has come and gone. The empire of Genghis Khan, the Mongol Empire, was in some ways far vaster than the Roman Empire since it spanned from Korea all the way to Eastern Europe. But where is it now? Forgotten in obscurity, so much so that hardly anyone in this sanctuary, I bet you can point out where the country of Mongolia is on a global map. That's exactly the point. Mighty men and women have come and gone. Mighty empires and nations come only to exit from the stages of the world. So Paul says there's something incomparable, incomparably better than all you've ever dreamed of. That is your identity in Jesus. 
Think about that. Is your identity in Jesus something that you can honestly say, hey, I want you to become just like me. I want you to have this because it's so much better than anything you can ever dream of. That's a huge challenge and also a comfort. You see, here's the thing, that, 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 that our world with all of its beauties, all of its glories will come to uh, pass. Let me illustrate it this way. So U2 is my favorite band of all time. I, you know, in 1986, I went to Foxborough Stadium and you know, went to watch U2 play their concert. And that's back in the day when, you know, when you're at a concert, you actually have an actual lighter rather than your cell phone, you know, like, like you know, kind of light it up and like singing the song. And, and my favorite song by U2 is this song called Where the Streets Have No Name. Some of you may know this. It's a beautiful, fantastic song. You know how the song goes? It goes like this. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. I want to feel sunlight on my face. I see that dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter from the poison rain where the streets have no name. Throughout the song, this refrain, where the streets have no name, you know what that is about? You know, so they explain, uh, Bono explained the, the origin and the meaning behind this song where the streets have no name. He says, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where they're from, you can go to a street where you can tell by looking at the street sign, right, where the streets have their names, as to what religion somebody is by living there, and whether you're Catholic or Protestant, or how rich or poor you are, by looking at street names, by looking at the, okay, that street. You know what I mean, right? I mean, that's true here in, in Davidson County, Williamson County. I forgot, this is Williamson County, right? I, this is back and forth between Old Hickory and Music Row and Cold Springs. I forget which county, but this is Williamson. In Williamson County, there are streets where you go and, oh, that's a good street or, you know, you know what I mean. Go to Los Angeles. You can go to Beverly Hills. That's, that signifies one thing. You can go to Brentwood in California. That signifies something else. They're both kind of affluent and a kind of desirable neighborhood. But if you go to Compton, it'll probably tell you something quite different. And that's exactly what they mean. See, it's an eschatological longing. It's a desire for the end. See, you 2 is singing about where the streets have no name. I want to go there. I want to go to go somewhere where the streets have no name so that regardless of what background I am in terms of my zip code and my tax bracket or income size and all of that, that I will not be discriminated against or looked down upon or treated differently because of the street's name. What street do you live on? And to me, this is something that, and they're singing, and, and as a Christian, I find this to be so compelling and beautiful. I say that in Christ, in Christ, there is really no male, nor female, or Jew, or Gentile, or Greek, or, you know, Scythian, or Barley, like none of it, because everyone is equal in the sight of God, because we're all children of God, daughters and sons of God. We're all adopted before anything at all came to be. In the infinite mind of God, in the all-merciful mind of God, God claimed you to be his. God said, you are mine. And I want you to really think about it and ask yourself that question. Is that my primary identity? Is that my primary identity that subsumes every other identities? Is being a child of God more important to me than where I live, where you work, and all of these things? And I hope they are. I hope they are, and I, and I think about that soberly and seriously. I can honestly say that belonging to God in Jesus Christ is far better than being a, you fill in the blank living on some street, working for thus and such company, or belonging to this particular club or community of friends. All of these things are helpful and beautiful and good, but they will come and go. 
The thing that will never leave you, nor forsake you, is God saying to you, you are mine. Then, then let's move to the third and the final point. And that is the inexcusability of indifference. We see that in verses 30 through 32. Notice with me the reaction of Agrippa and his sister Bernice and their entourage. Okay? Everyone leaves. Notice in verse 30. So Paul says, hey, you know, like, I want you to become what I am. You know, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all you are listening to me will become what I am except for these chains. You say something so powerful, so beautiful, so impassioned, and what's the response of the king? Notice in verse 30, he gets up and leaves. I mean, it'd be like, what happened? I'm telling you something so powerful and so beautiful, and you, your response is get up and go. Indifference of it's an inexcusability of indifference. Notice what else he says. They get up and leave, and that, guess what they do? In verse 31, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, notice these crazy words. Are you watching this? This man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Ah, that's inexcusable, isn't it? Agrippa knew, Agrippa knew in his own heart that Paul didn't do anything wrong. Agrippa knew that this man didn't do anything that deserves incarceration or capital punishment. But what does he do about it? Not a blessed thing. You see that? He just leaves. He knows. So this is what I mean by the inexcusability of that indifference. The writer focuses on, and then it says, furthermore, in verse 32, Agrippa tells Festus, hey, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Immediate release would have been possible because he didn't do anything wrong, but we're not going to let him do it. So this is a problem. He's not going to intervene in the matters of Roman jurisdiction. Agrippa, as a Jewish king, knew that in the eyes of Rome, he was kind of a, a puppet king. He's not going to intervene. Why bother? He knows that what he's going to do isn't going to make any difference. After saying that Paul did not do anything warranting death or imprisonment, Agrippa appeared, appeases his guilty conscience by saying, hey, I know he's not guilty, but he wouldn't do anything beyond that. Before I point my finger at Agrippa and laugh at him and, and mock him, let's also ask ourselves this difficult question. What about us? Agrippa knew what the right course of action was. Agrippa knew what truth was regarding this prisoner named Paul. But what does he do? He washes his hands off, says, I know he's not guilty of death or incarceration, but I ain't going to do squat. I'm just going to walk away. And that, I think, really leaves us thinking about where we are and who we are. In what ways do we care? So to me, there's an inexcusability of indifference. As Elie Wiesel, this Nobel Prize winning uh, survivor of the Holocaust, who wrote in his book, The Night, he said, the opposite of hate, right? So, and, and he says, that's not it. Like the opposite of, of hate is not, um, uh, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. The opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. And think about that. Agrippa knew Paul was innocent, isn't going to intervene, is not going to get his hands dirty, but I'm just going to stand on the sidelines and watch. Are we, am I, like that? I don't know about you, but I am like that. I find myself being indifferent. I find myself worried about getting you know, involved too much, and so we hold back. 
Festus needs Jesus, Agrippa needs Jesus, Paul needs Jesus, and we need Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that we're not orphans, right? The beautiful theology of adoption tells us that before anything at all came to be, God knew you. Before you were born, God knew you. Before all of your days were lived out, God knows them. And God has claimed you and called you and made you God's own. He says, you belong to me. That means that I don't have to try to earn the love of God the Father who gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ. I cannot earn it. I don't need to even try. I don't need to jump through different hoops. To me, that was one of the most earth-shattering things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I became a Christian as a junior in college. When I heard this message, I couldn't believe it. Because all of my life, I've been told that you need to actually, you know, do things because, you know, I came to America when I was in middle school and, and, and life, American dream was try hard, try your best because good things will happen. And that is the logic of this world, right? You work hard and good things will happen. But then the logic of grace says, no, you cannot try, you cannot work enough because working hard will actually drive you further and further away from God because you're going to be filled with a sense of self-righteousness, self-generated righteousness. You generate the self-sense of, hey, I'm good, I am righteous because I'm a good citizen, I live in the right zip code, I pay taxes, I, my kids are well-behaved. and Those things accumulate into becoming our self-generated righteousnesses. And Paul says, you know what? If anyone could be made righteous before the sight of God, he says, I would have been the first one. But you see the thing is right here that, that one of the things that we really show that we belong to God's family is that we care about this world. We care about this world in the name of Jesus. Let me say that again. You care about this world in the name of Christ because this world is fallen. We are fallen. Yet God reconciled us in Jesus Christ and God calls us to be partners in terms of this restoration project. God is saying, hey, Jane, hey, Paul, hey, Brian, hey, you know, uh, uh, whatever your name is, I want you to be my covenant partner. I want you to join me in this work of restoration of this creation and restoration of people who are lost without me. So the inexcusability of indifference is that you cannot say, I cannot say, well, I'm too busy. Well, see, we're all, a lot of times we're so self-absorbed like I am. I've heard something really funny, and this is uh, what one of my friends said. You know what? I may not be a lot, but I'm all I got, and I'm all I think about. Right? <laughs> and I think you're laughing because I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. You probably are like that. Right? I may not be a lot, but I am all I got, and I'm all I think about. So what the gospel does for us is it, it decenters us from our tiny thrones. And it recenters us in the love of Jesus Christ so that indifference is not going to be the leading edge of my engagement with the world. You see, friends, let me finish this way. One of the books that has really uh, impacted me a lot when I was in seminary and much beyond is a book called Embodying Forgiveness, a theological analysis by L. Gregory Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones used to be a professor of theology at, at Duke University, but now is uh, president of Belmont University. And in the book, more than anything else, Greg Jones's challenge in that book, Embodying Forgiveness, is that forgiveness remains at the level of theory and abstraction until we actually embody it and practice it, right? It is one thing for me to say, I believe in forgiveness, but it is another thing to begin to actually actualize it and embody it. Right? Until I begin to forgive somebody who has done me wrong. 
It could be your own mother. It could be your own father. It could be some stranger. It could be a lot of these stories. And as I'm journeying in my 56th year, you know, being a theological educator and a pastor, I hear a lot of stories. And I say sometimes to myself, that's a crazy story to hear that that has happened to you. But the fact that you're still a believer is crazier yet. That amazing grace of God who's carrying you in this life. I, I see pain so much around, both starting with me, but around our community. So we need to embody that forgiveness because forgiveness is something that the world doesn't know much about. By the rivers of Babylon, we, see, we sat and weep because the language and the grammar of Babylon is one of justice in the name of vengeance, and it's not forgiveness. It is that embodying of that forgiveness that we begin to show the world that indifference isn't the last word. That, that we're, we, are, we are not often given over to hate, as Wiesel says, but we are far more easily given over to indifference. The gospel of Jesus calls us to care, whether by way of Operation Christmas or by prayer for all the fellow Christians who are suffering in the name of Jesus in different parts of the world or wrapping the gifts as we are watching that video of that rap song by a group of your youth group students here, um, that, that God of all comfort calls us to participate in the work of redemption and restoration of all things because we're called to, um, call, call to love everything into life in the name of the Lord. So insanity, incomparability, and inexcusability, maybe these three words that you hadn't thought of before. But as you're about to come to the table, I want to encourage all of you to think about what that means, that Jesus became insane for me. He was called, hey, you're insane. The Apostle Paul was called insane. But also think about the incomparability of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Could that be true of you? If you're not a believer yet, I want you to really kind of sit on that idea that there's something incomparable about the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives you a new identity that you, you didn't know that you could even have, that you could actually have this wide vista of the future open because God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And the third word is inexcusability of indifference. I want you to think about where you are. What do you care about right now? What do you really care about right now? As parents, you may care about your child, and that's completely understandable, and it is in the sort of embodying the love of God. But extend your tribe, extend your us, right? As our, my dear friend Dr. Brandy Keller says, yes, the call of the gospel pushes us to extend the boundaries of us. Who is part of my community? So inexcusability of indifference. May these words challenge you and expand your horizon of faithful imagination as you follow Jesus from death to life and from this life to the one to come. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you there that you are ever near us and with us at whatever hour of the day that we can call upon you to be our faithful savior who will claim us to be yours. Thank you for all the sisters and brothers who are here worshiping you in truth and spirit as we continue our worship together with this ritual and sacrament of the Lord's Supper, may you lift up our hearts unto yourself. May we be able to see Jesus who is giving of himself in this beautiful a sacrament called the Lord's Supper is something that we will cherish each and every day. That thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for that giving so that we may care about this world that is being renewed in your power for your glory and in your name. And it is in your name we prayed. Amen.